This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. This holds a great treasure. Now you will find the treasure in this field. And I claim it. Listen. I feel suddenly empty. He's coming! This podcast contains flashing images and stroboscopic sequences. Nonetheless, congratulations are in order. You have hereby been accepted to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Eric Winnick. And I'm Bradford Lorick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because one of us is going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And this heathen will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, or for the purposes of this show, your teacher of terror, your guidance counselor of gore. Joining us tonight to discuss the 2013 British historical psychological horror film, A Field in England, is a very special guest all the way from Los Angeles, California, Bobby Frederick Tilly. As I'm sure you know, Bobby is a costume designer for television, theater, and film. His theater credits include Be More Chill on Broadway, for which he received one of his two Drama Desk Award nominations. His work has also been seen at the Atlantic Theater Company, the Geffen Playhouse, the Signature Theater, the Roundabout Theater Company, Second Stage, Labyrinth Theater Company, Rattlestick Theater, and Ars Nova, among other venues. He is also, as he will have you know, a lifelong fan of the horror. Thank you for joining us, Bobby. How are you doing? And what are you up to these days? I'm doing well. I am navigating my life in L.A. and uh, looking for interesting projects right now. 
Um, okay. Do you want to talk about Be More Chill in Japan? Well, we did mount Be More Chill in Japan this past summer, which was fascinating. It uh, ran for a bit there and uh, was quite a success. Doing uh, a project over Zoom is pretty crazy, especially when there's that large of a cast. Now, Bradford, you and Bobby go back a ways. How do you two know each other? Well, Bobby and I met in the elevator at Playwrights Horizons. <laughs> uh, and then we went on to live together in Greenpoint, Brooklyn for many, many years in a wild sort of cabinet of curiosities of an apartment. Uh, we've been really good buddies for many, many years. We've collaborated on a bunch of work for the theater and uh, some stuff on film. Bobby is just like one of my absolute best friends, a hilarious human being, and one of the best people to both watch scary movies with and to talk about scary movies with. So I'm really excited that he's here tonight. So Bobby, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre? And do you have a favorite horror film? Well, I started watching scary movies when I was very young. It started watch. I started watching them with my sister. Um, we would uh, Saturday mornings, pretty much all day long, watch whatever would come on, and that started with Universal films, um, and graduated to uh, Hammer horror, which my sister kind of checked out of, but I could not stop watching. Um, and then it turned to me going to the movies twice a week. Um, and sneaking into R-rated films, which I was too young to see, and coming home and having horrible nightmares about <laughs> xenomorphs. And then going back the next weekend to watch Alien again. Um, and haven't been away since. And do you have a, a favorite horror film or, or perhaps uh, like a few? That is definitely too hard to pinpoint as to one. But I'm certainly a fan of... Um, 70s Italian is a, a big thing and certainly I'm sure I wouldn't be the first one to say Suspiria but uh, if I did want to pinpoint that one it would be one but also Inferno which is probably my more favorite uh, Argento interesting um, I couldn't stomach that one but I did enjoy Suspiria so you like the Italians are you a fan of Fulci or Bava I, I am, but I think I tend to prefer uh, Argento's sort of uh, sort of hysteria on screen more. And certainly but from it, a design perspective, I think Argento oh, the probably resonates is, for you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm a color freak, and like that satisfies so much. So now let's discuss what this film is about. Now, first of all, Mr. Winnick, is there any truth to the rumor that your balls scream like harpies? Not exactly, but I have a few other maladies I could share. Well, I'm sure we'll get to all of them before the episode is over. But for now, would you give us one of your patented brief 
spoiler-free synopses that we have all come to know and love. Cue music. The 17th century, the English Civil War. Whitehead, a man of letters, maker of lace, and self-described coward, is tasked with finding and arresting the colleague and rival alchemist who stole his master's papers. He enlists the aid of Cutler, a soldier who claims he can take them to a nearby alehouse, and two deserters, the wily Jacob and dull-minded friend. Upon arriving at Cutler's destination, not the alehouse, but a wide-open field strewn with hallucinogenic mushrooms, the group locates the alchemist, O'Neill. But instead of taking in his man, Whitehead, along with Jacob and Friend, find themselves O'Neill's prisoners. And as Whitehead becomes a literal tool in O'Neill's plot to seek out a deposit of gold in the field, this one-time familiar place quickly turns strange and otherworldly. Excellent, sir. Thank you. Now, let's talk about who made this film and who's in this film. Yes, this film is directed by Ben Wheatley, also known for such memorable and far-flung fare as Kill List, Sightseers, High Rise, Free Fire, In the Earth, and a couple episodes of Doctor Who. Uh, Depending on when you're hearing this, Wheatley is currently working on a sequel to the big shark film, The Meg aptly titled The Meg 2 The Trench, or The Meg 2 The Trench has come out, and you're wondering why Wheatley had anything to do with it. The film, which was written by Wheatley's partner in art and life, Amy Jump, features an excellent cast, including the Irish actor Michael Smiley as the villainous O'Neill. And if you know Wheatley, you've seen Smiley, as he's also appeared in Down Terrace, Free Fire, and Kill List. Joining him is Reese Shearsmith of the long-running British TV show Inside Number 9, along with The League of Gentlemen. And he's also worked with Wheatley in High Rise and the 2021 film In the Earth. Rounding out the cast are another Wheatley collaborator, Peter Ferdinando as Jacob, Richard Glover as Friend, Ryan Pope as Cutler, and Julian Barrett as the short-lived Trower. Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. And then we make fun of the critics. A Field in England was released on multiple platforms in the UK on July 5th, 2013. It had a budget of £316,000, was shot over the course of 12 days, and brought in around $33,000 in US and Canada and around $97,000 worldwide. Uh, As for the critics, the film currently holds a very sunny 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. Of the film, Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian gushed, What a unique filmmaker Wheatley is becoming. From the realms of contemporary social realism, crime, comedy, and fear, he has moved on to lo-fi period drama, but cleverly alighted on the one period that suits his stripped-down visuals and subversive instincts perfectly. The English Revolution may be the one that isn't taught in schools, 
but it has provided the inspiration for a punk nightmare. While another Peter, De Bruges of Variety, grumbled, clearly Wheatley is bored with the paint-by-numbers approach of his horror contemporaries, but has swung so far in the opposite direction here, the result feels almost amateurishly avant-garde at times, guilty of the sort of indulgences one barely tolerates in student films. Oof. Stephen Dalton of The Hollywood Reporter stated, infuriatingly opaque at times, Wheatley's fourth feature may prove too forbiddingly weird for some. It lacks the genre-friendly accessibility of his previous work, particularly last year's comically macabre road trip comedy Sightseers, as well as the nerve-jangling crescendo of tension that made his 2011 hitman thriller Kill List so powerful. The tone here is more episodic and elliptical, alternating between Monty Python and David Lynch, sometimes at the expense of narrative coherence. Sounds like he wasn't in love with it. Well, Monty Python and David Lynch are not bad touchstones. Not at all. Let's move on. And now's our opportunity to ask the professor the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is you, Mr. Lorick. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, now, as usual, folks, Eric had not seen this film prior to this viewing. But Bobby, you had seen the film, yes? Yes, a few times, and I believe the first time with you. Got it. So back to you, Professor. Tell us, why did you choose this particular film? Well, um, it's folk horror, um, I think it's technically provocative, if not strictly innovative. Um, and, and I think it also serves as a kind of antecedent to something like The Wicker Man, uh, as it sort of explores expansive versus limited worldviews. Um, and, and it does that through the lenses of philosophy, religion, and magic. Um, and as you pointed out in your synopsis, it's set against the backdrop of the English Civil War. Um, and further, I think as another point of comparison uh, to The Wicker Man, um, witchcraft became a capital offense in England in the 1560s, about 100 years before a field in England is set. And The Wicker Man responds to its reemergence in the 40s and its proliferation in the 70s. Um, I think the tone is serious, but it's undercut by moments of comedy and an increasing level of surrealism. Uh, I think it has a great soundtrack and also sound design um, with war drums and disorienting oscillations uh, and a score that I think is a bit like a simplified version of Michael Nyman's score for the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Uh, I think the choice to use black and white film stock uh, is very interesting at this time. Um, I think it makes it feel timeless, kind of like a historical document. Uh, and I, I also think 
it's an unusual choice in our contemporary visual vernacular that kind of makes you sit up and, and focus on what you're looking at. Um, there are also, I think, very few examples of psychedelic black and white films, which makes this more interesting, except for maybe um, Luis Bunuel's uh, surrealist Dada masterpiece, Un Chien Andalou, or, and Bobby, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this uh, as a point of comparison, uh, Kiet Vu, Polly Magoo, or Who Are You, Polly Magoo, um, which William Klein directed in the mid-60s. Was it 66? I think it's 66. Um, and, you know, also uh, something that I say again and again, and and probably more so this season than last, is that... A field in England rewards multiple viewings uh, and is widely and wildly open to interpretation. Um, so it's a bit of a history lesson couched in this crazy horror movie. So I have to say, one of the things I really love about doing this podcast is that from time to time, uh, we hit on a film by a director that I really admire. And this one, this episode is special for me, mainly because... I held off seeing this film for like a year because I knew we were going to cover it this season. I will say I've seen most of Wheatley's films and I've enjoyed several of them. Most of all, Kill List from 2011, which is this amazing melding of domestic drama, hitman, buddy comedy, and folk horror. Uh, in general, I think Wheatley can be pretty hit or miss, but that three film run of Kill List, Sightseers, and then this film, I mean, that's as good a run as any younger generation director working today, I think. And after this film, he kind of branched out and started doing, dare I say, more mainstream fare with bigger actors. Unfortunately, Army Hammer, uh, like Free Fire, High Rise, and Rebecca. And the results were not always successful, which is what made his return to folk horror, uh, 2021's In the Earth, such a relief because it did feel like he was returning to his roots, sort of. And like this film, that has a very small ensemble, including Reese Shearsmith. It takes place in nature. Some horrible things happen. Uh, there are mushrooms. And it becomes totally weird toward the end. Um, I will give my thoughts on this film after the spoiler warning. Have you two seen any of his other films? Um, I guess I would say like your your reference to his, his three movie run being your feeling being that, that, that it's very strong. I would include High Rise. Because it shows a uh, move into like a slightly sci-fi version of his horror, which is not present in anything else he does. And I think that it it alludes to, I think he's experimenting with every single piece he does. And so yeah. even when he goes into Rebecca, he's experiencing like a sort of like a uh, vision of melodrama, which... I think maybe he touches in other things, but is fully realized there, even if it's not the best film of his. Bradford, have you seen his other films? Yeah, um, I've seen Kill List, Sightseers, High Rise, In the Earth. That may be it. Um, and among those, uh, Sightseers is my favorite. Uh if mm. only for the pink crocheted bra and panties. Truly, <laughs> Sightseers is hilarious to watch, especially with somebody yes. who is fun to watch horror movies with. 
I mean, especially if you happen to be as misanthropic as uh, perhaps Bobby Frederick Tilly and I might be. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Sightseers is aces across the board. I love Kill List, um, and In the Earth is uh, is is a wild uh, viewing experience. But Sightseers is the one that that really does it for me. <laughs> Oh shit and thistles, that sounds like the fire drill. Everyone, please leave the building single file. Do not walk, do not run, and under no circumstances should you listen further if you have not seen the film. Because we are about to launch into an absolutely disgusting tranche of spoilers. Alright, now that we've survived that atrocity, let's head directly to Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments scenes or aspects that made this such an indelible film or not. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments on a roll, i.e. what worked and detention, i.e. what did not work. Now, Mr. Winnick and Mr. Tilly, just to establish where we are on the playing field, so to speak, just a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? I did quite a bit. And Mr. Winnick? Surprisingly, Bradford, yes, I did like this film. All right. I love that answer. It happens so rarely. <laughs> but let's get into it. Uh, we'll do honor roll first, uh, and we'll do it round robin style. Um, and we'll each sort of name scenes or moments or attributes of this film that worked best for us. And then we'll hand out detention slips. So, um, Bobby, as our very special guest today, we'll let you go first. What is your first nomination for the honor roll? I myself quite enjoy when we're nearing the climax of the film and Whitehead decides the best course of action is to ingest mass quantities of mushrooms, <laughs> which opens up his perception and his ability to access his own magical power. <laughs> And yes. elicits this massive magical storm and psychedelic experience that he's experiencing and we're experiencing. And how about you, Eric? I should probably acknowledge up front that unlike our other films, because we had to cancel our initial recording due to a minor case of coronavirus, I did have a chance to watch this film a second time. So these takes are probably a bit more thought out than normal. Uh, I think this film is a tough watch initially, and I think it becomes clearer uh, the second time. So my first honor roll mention is the technical elements. Uh, this really is the ultimate do a lot with very little film, and it shows you only need a few key elements to conjure time and place. Uh, in this case, to give people a sense that you're in an all-out war. I love the black and white cinematography by Laurie Rose. I think it's key to nailing the tone of the film. I also love the costume design by Emma Fryer. Emma Fryer, who I should say plays the enigmatic Fiona in Kill List. And finally, props to the droning soundscape by Martin Pavey and the score by Jim Williams, um, which we've we'd already heard a, a little bit of. Everything just works in sync here. Now, Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a good chunk of the film's budget may have gone into making the costumes. Can you comment on that? I actually don't know if that's true because there's yeah. something about the costumes that feel um, 
they're very deeply worn and beautifully distressed. And I think my guess is is that they pulled these from a stock and or a rental house. These, right. And created these characters with the actors visually. That's what mm. it feels like to me. And I think it's super successful. On Ben Wheatley's Instagram, there is a a quick picture or a couple of pictures of actors trying on hats and having yes yes been in, having been in rooms you know doing that with actors i mean that process is revealing and fascinating and you know you can spend massive amounts of money costuming designing mm-hmm. and building things but sometimes the process of being in a room with an actor and a director and just exploring produces something great And shooting on black and white as they have, it brings out textures and qualities of black, white, and gray that come from colors. So we have no idea what the colors of these costumes are. They could be hideous, and that's fascinating to me, (laughs) Um, design-wise. But yeah, my guess is most of this was pulled. Um, Bradford, what do you have? I am going to uh, give an honor roll nomination to the unique structure of this film, which doesn't have discrete scenes, but tidy acts that are sort of punctuated with these very unique tableau vivant, where um, the actors are sort of still, but the atmosphere continues to move around them. Um, Smoke and fog kind of drift through a scene, sort of animating it. Their clothes are blowing in the wind on these locations where they're shooting. Um, And I think it's also kind of fascinating that that they occur sort of at, at even intervals, sort of a third of the way through, two thirds of the way through. I, I think it's something that we don't uh, we don't really see in contemporary film. It, it makes it feel um, unique. All right, so uh, Bobby, give us another honor roll nomination. Um, back to the idea of 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 doing a film like this on meager resources. It is fascinating to have seen what he did with a single location, a single single style of camera shooting, cinematography this reliance on on black and white imagery to create all of these not effects but experiences while watching the movie which going back to what Bradford said about uh Polly Magoo there are aspects of this that definitely feel like op art to me which seems like a radical idea when you're talking about you know the 1600s and i just think there were there were moments that made me feel like i was watching op art Specifically, I am referring to op art that like sort of begins in the 60s. So this like idea of black and white oscillating images or um, uh, also highly fluorescent. Of course, right now we're just talking about black, white and gray. There's also, you know, there's a couple of visions of the black sun that feel like a sort of uh, uh, an eye into like another world from this feel this magical place that they're trapped in and i was just deeply fascinated by that idea and i mean of course you know that also relates to the idea of the black scrying mirror absolutely and it that mirror image comes back so it's related to the sun but it is also related to um 
individual visions that happen during the course of the film. And that, if you've caught it, it moves back and forth in time. We, in fact, see the mirror cracked far earlier than that happens. Uh, which is kind of interesting, I think, um, from a, a sort of visual and, and narrative perspective. Um, you know, so I think to kind of pick up on that, I would give an honor roll mention to um, to the ideas of double crosses and reversals that occur throughout this film. You know, there's a point at which the world literally turns upside down for Whitehead. And, you know, of course, I mean, the, those ideas of reflection or refraction, you know, as, as Bobby was kind of talking about... Um, the, the scene where O'Neill is looking for Whitehead, you know, everybody's kind of disappeared or, or sort of run off. And the wizard O'Neill is looking for Whitehead while Whitehead is foraging for um, the mushrooms and stuffing his face with more and more psychedelic mushrooms, right? It kind of heightens and attunes his senses. It also has the side effect of making him you know, trip his screaming harpies off and activating the fullness of his supernatural abilities. But it also unleashes the most psychedelic imagery that we've experienced so far. All of that stroboscopic cutting and, and things playing in reverse and mirroring and morphing and, and kind of presenting a unique representation of a showdown between two powerful magicians in a really kaleidoscopic fashion. Uh, now, Eric, what about you? Another honor roll uh, nomination? So there are some fantastic scenes and lines in this film, which I have to say is quite funny uh, upon rewatch. Uh, one aspect in particular really got to me, especially when you're watching this film in poor health. Um, it's made clear fairly early on that Jacob is unwell, let's just say. Uh, he attempts to defecate at one point and he has a really hard time doing it. And later in the film, in one of those weird expositional moments where you realize Whitehead knows way more than you think, um, he basically diagnoses Jacob by looking at his penis and deducing, and here's the line verbatim, I am not going to attempt to do Reese Shearsmith, but he says, sir, you merely suffer a disease in the private parts occasioned by too much venereal sport. I also deduce gout, bloody flux, a postum of the mouth, the pissing disease, St. Anthony's fire, iliac passion, hemorrhoids, and palsy brought on by drink. Jacob asks that I'm not going to turn into a frog, and Whitehead responds, "'Tis the one complaint you do not suffer besides plague." And one very brief other mention, when Friend dies for the second time, I think, he asks the others to convey a message to his wife, which you think is going to be this heartfelt, loving ode. But he basically tells them that he hates her, that he fucked her sister from behind like a prize sow, and he burned her family's barn. So not, not what you're expecting there. Yes, friend's second death confession and ask for Jacob to deliver his message is a total scream and makes me deeply love that character. It's so <laughs> twisted. And, yes. <laughs> yes. And that writing is, is quite good. In terms of another mention for the film, I would say that one of the things that really excited me about is the idea of how they take historical realism of the period and uh, reference it or mirror it. 
and also just culturally of the time what she's exploring as a as a screenwriter so at a, a certain point uh when whitehead is talking to friend and uh he talks about his his uh master and he describes this man that he works for so he's basically describing a, a man named john d who was a uh real uh a person um, uh, a magician who was an advisor um, to uh, Elizabeth I. And he was, and again, he would have died by the time this story happens. I think John D. dies in uh, 1609. So it's a version or a mirror image of, of this, this man. So even though witchcraft is illegal at this point, they understand, they, they believe magic to be real. And so they have advisors and, you know, it's taken quite seriously. Uh, I also think, you know, that we're talking about, you know, this this field that they're in as a magical place where they cross the hedgerow and every rule changes. That idea from beginning to end is super satisfying as a viewer. Uh, I mean, to, to sort of pick up on that, England is is sort of filled with legendary sort of charged magical spaces, right? Like... Um, Stonehenge or Tintagel or Glastonbury Tor or St. Michael's Mount. And so I'm uh, very excited about the way that this film really kind of simply explores those ideas of magical spaces. And it's really interesting to talk about what happens inside the hedgerows because time doesn't really exist the way it does uh, outside of, you know, uh, before they sort of cross into this field, how, how long are they there? How For how many hours or days have they been laboring? Uh, especially when the wizard O'Neill uh, is sort of summoned back, uh, you know, they, they drag him out of a hole in the ground that, you know, uh, he's attached to a rope like an umbilical cord that's tied around a a pillar that's carved with magical symbols. Like nothing is as it seems outside. The The sun never really changes position in the sky, right? The light never gets brighter or dimmer. And, and further, Bobby, beyond crossing through the hedgerow into the field, um, when they get to the mushroom circle, that sort of further changes everything when they enter it. Um, and so, I mean, I just think that, uh, you know, locationally, it's it's fascinating from a sort of intellectual, philosophical, um, like occult adjacent perspective. My feeling, and I think we talked about this a, a, a little bit the first time we watched the film, the borders of this space move or the perception mm -hmm. of the borders of this space move. And that is both a magical idea and and what happens when you are on mushrooms, when you are under psychedelic experience. Um, and I think those two ideas merging are fascinating. We hear several times in the film that there are only shadows here. I mean, it sort of signals that we 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 may have found ourselves in a place of paranormal goings on. Well, it's right? fairy realm. It's like yes. you know, magic is persistent there. Uh, Eric, uh, do you have another um, honor roll uh, nomination? Yeah, a huge hooray to all of the actors, but in particular Reese. Shearsmith, who I think has the only real character arc in this film, he starts out very clean and put together this kind of meek, subservient assistant to this man we never see, 
whom he calls his master. He refuses to eat the mushrooms with the others. He won't take up arms. But by the end, through this very weird confluence of events, he's he's not only wolfing down the mushrooms, he's blowing Michael Smiley's head off and walking away in O'Neill's clothes. So that's, you know, that's a pretty complete arc. Especially after he opens up and lets the devil in. All right. I guess I would like to um, to give an honor roll nomination broadly to the writing. From the very beginning, uh, when Whitehead is told, you know, your pretty parts are doomed homunculus, um, to, to thinking that they would find a better quality of suffering in Cutler's company. The writing is really nuanced, uh, and whether the humor is subtle or overt, um, I, I think it deserves attention and honor roll mention. Just in response to, to Eric's assessment of, of Reese's character arc throughout the whole thing, there's a great line that I think encapsulates and it's it's sort of squarely in the middle of what he starts and where he goes to and it's actually delivered by O'Neill and it's a man can hold a great deal inside that he does not comprehend and he says that as as Whitehead is vomiting up these literal rune stones um yes that he does not remember consuming of course O'Neill can't even understand them because he does not have the innate power that Whitehead has and so has to go and look at his stolen documents to try to suss that out. Uh, Not only innate power, but probably also intellectual pursuit and dedication. Right. right? He's actually open and like learned and like follows that through and, and I think is fascinated by his own instincts. And that's why ultimately I think he is able to transverse the field in a way that that O'Neill never did. Well, not only that, but O'Neill also basically acknowledges at a point that Whitehead uh, is ostensibly more powerful than he is. Right. Uh, Whitehead doesn't actually, like, capture him. It's all a trap for O'Neill to get Whitehead in order to help him find this treasure. And when the boys have unearthed O'Neill at the end of the rope, O'Neill says that, in fact, he conjured Whitehead. And that's just uh, one instance of these kinds of reversals or turning of tables, right? Because O'Neill immediately sort of claims Whitehead as his prisoner and calls him a divining rod that he's going to use to uncover treasure that's buried in the field. Like there's that moment when he brings Whitehead inside the tent and apparently we don't see what's happening in there, but based on the sounds, you know, uh, coming out of the tent, it's like he's visiting the tortures of the damned upon Whitehead and the screams that are coming out are so intense that they're like driving the other men to the point of madness. And I believe my second watch, I was uh, uh, struck by the idea of what was going on in that tent. Obviously, there's some kind of torture, whether it is strictly physical or psychological or magical. Then upon his exit of the tent, you see that he's at least temporarily subjugated to O'Neill's will and performs this dowsing ritual where he's racing across the field, sometimes in circles, sometimes in what looks like it's moving either backwards in time or it's sort of, it's its, its own sort of like mysterious moment. Everyone is chasing him and it feels like Benny Hill, which I thought was very humorous. And that 
again, has never, has been an image that's been in my mind now each time I've seen the film. Detention, after school, both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? M motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. So, as I said, upon initial watch, I found this film hard to follow. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's one of those, quote, cumulative experience horror films like Eraserhead, where you just kind of have to let it wash over you. And it's it's about how the totality of it makes you feel, you know, more the sum of the parts than the parts themselves. So there are times where I was just like, who are these people? <laughs> what are they doing? What is their goal? Um, and the one moment I think typified that for me was the scene where they seem to be in a sort of one-sided tug of war. And it results in pulling O'Neill out of nowhere. Um, he just appears. I've read since that this has something to do with something called a fairy ring, which, and and what it takes to remove someone from it. But honoring what I saw the first time, which I think is what I'm responding to here, I was extremely confused by this. Um, also, why does friend come back from the dead? Not once, but twice, maybe three times. Is it black magic? Uh, what's the meaning of this black sun uh, image that we keep seeing? Uh, why do we have these various tableau poses throughout the film? I mean, it feels like Wheatley is almost trying to create these 17th century paintings, but to what end? Like I said, when I saw it again, much of it came together, but I still don't know whether a lot of the happenings were a result of the mushrooms or like the occult, and that frustrated me. I can see some of what you're talking about, but I guess my question back to you is, does it matter that you didn't understand it the first time? Because experientially, it made you wonder constantly. And if you go back and you see another layer unfold, isn't that more successful? If I was to put myself back in the experience of watching this for the first time and being very confused by it, I mean, it's clear that you guys have put a lot of thought into this. Um, but the experience of watching a film for the first time is so important. Um, it counts for something. It's a it's a, a hard movie to be particularly articulate about. I don't think this film is for everybody, and there are things that are not explained and make it you know difficult for the viewer to find a way in. I think that sort of speaks to what the audience brings to the film. Bobby began earlier with a point about John D. You know Elizabeth the firsts astrologer and alchemist and metaphysician and court magician and, you know, precursor to doctor and scientist and all of these things, right? And I will say that um, until I really kind of thought about it, I also assumed that like Whitehead's master was John D. Turns out he's a John D. type because D. was already dead by the time of the English Civil War. Right, but I have no idea who John D is. So what I'm saying is like I know that Bobby and I upon seeing it the first time know who John D was and make a certain set of assumptions about the characters that we're talking about 
and knowing that the English Civil War was kind of broadly about religious freedom and governance, you know, and, and both of those ideas are explored through the character experiences in the film, which is not to say that your experience is faulty because you didn't know who John Dee was, but my first viewing of it was probably very different from yours because I did. Right, absolutely. So I don't know much about the English Civil War. So the way I experienced this was, what are the characters going through? What are their arcs? What is happening in the divination sequence? Why is this character dead and now he's alive? I mean, you're left to put it together yourself. And and when you don't know about fairy rings or scrying, you have to take it at face value. But when you see it a second time and you've read a little bit or you've watched a bit about the making of the film... Then it comes together, but you know it doesn't change the fact that you had this initial experience. I I would say it's interesting and surprising the rating that it has on Rotten Tomatoes. It makes me think that quite a few people were able able to appreciate it without necessarily having a deep knowledge base, which is nice. Um, Yes. So the work that Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump did to create this script is obviously in there. But I think she and he give you levels on which you can link into this story. For some people, I think they're seeing a lot more. You approach it, I think, or or saw it from a, a place where you were given deep mystery about this story and what it meant. I mean, ultimately, you liked the film. So whether you had to go back and see it again to experience more and to like appreciate and understand what it actually meant, I think that speaks to success. So this is something I'm putting into tension only because I couldn't make up my mind and I'm interested in your points of view on it. And that is, is this a horror film? Um, it would seem to fall into the folk horror subgenre like some other Wheatley films, although Wheatley himself has denied this. But the first time I watched it, I was I was wondering, okay, so at what point does the horror come in? Which goes back to my previous point about cumulative experience horror, um, where you know it sort of creeps up on you, and then by the end, you're like, oh yeah, that that was a horror film. I have felt this way when I watched films like um, the ones by Benson and Moorhead for the first time, like The Endless or Synchronic, or even their latest Something in the Dirt. And I thought to myself, well, maybe this is one of those films where you really have to watch it a few times, uh, which in turn makes me wonder, do certain films need to be seen more than once to be fully appreciated? And what does that say about one's initial take? You know, is it wrong? I think everything that, that we see, every piece of art that we see, if, it's a, if it is serious in intent... Uh, sort of demands excavation. Right. Um, if you get everything out of a film or a painting or any form of art experience, if you get everything out of it the first time, it's not that good, is it? But does that discount the initial viewing? It doesn't discount no, because... the initial viewing, but I mean, if you if it sparks your imagination and you want more out of it and you are able to go back and excise layers out of your experience. I mean, that speaks to quality. And I think this film falls into that category easily. The, the way that I like to experience a horror film for the first time, and I know I'm not exactly answering the question, is this a horror film? Yes, I think this is a horror film. But I think it's a horror film that operates, again, on multiple levels. Like, what is the horror? 
you know? Is right. the horror simply the experience that the characters are having, or is the horror something deeper and more philosophical? Right, because this is like so different. At one point I was like, why is this even on Shudder? It's just so anomalous from everything else we've seen. Though, I mean, as we'll see later this season, even something as ostensibly straightforward as the old dark house needs to be read through a very specific understanding of the circumstances in which it was made, which creates a sort of deeper appreciation for the piece of art. I I always want to have a clean experience of a horror film the first time. Ideally, it's in a theater with other people. Um, You know, ideally, I'm sitting there and just like letting the experience wash over me and I'm taking away the things that I take away. And that's always different. Right. But then I want to go back and see it again to, to sort of pull it apart. So the norm for me on this podcast will be, you know, I will have only seen the film once. So you're going to get that pure initial response and that's what it's going to be all about. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear from Bobby what he thinks makes this a horror film. I do think this is a, a, a horror film. It's, and, and again, it is not your usual horror film. The horror is transformation, I think. Um, mm. And unlike body horror, this is about like spirit and mind. The horror is, yes, letting go completely and seeing what you are on the inside. And, you know, it goes from Whitehead not knowing who he is, having some sense of who he is, but filled with fear. And maybe, and and that's it. It's embracing that fear, letting it wash into you and coming out the other side. And that is the core, I think, of why this is horror. All right. Whew. Before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. Let's get some air into our lungs. Let's run around a little bit, expend some energy, maybe even have a snack or two. Mr. Bobby Frederick Tilly, do you, or did you, have a favorite recess snack? Opiates and black licorice. Okay. um... (laughs) I mean, they are nice together. No, of course, of course. So now let's take a break and then come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, speaks very highly of you. He's very popular, Ed. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award, the Gaspar Noé Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for the French auteur responsible for such delightful flicks as uh, Irreversible, Enter the Void, Climax, Lux Eterna, and many more. 
All right, so I think the most disturbing scene, it's one of two moments. It's either when O'Neill sticks the barrel of his flintlock in Cutler's mouth and blows the back of his head off, or when Whitehead shoots O'Neill through the back of the head and blows his face off. Pretty disturbing. What about you, Bobby? What's your uh, Gaspar Noe award for the most disturbing scene? Well, I might agree with you on either one of those, although I might quote those as satisfying rather than disturbing. But I will say that what I think is pretty disturbing is when Jacob and friend are in the pit and Cutler decides to piss on them and then shoots them. I think that is a disturbing combination. I think that's a totally valid answer. Um, And what about you, Eric? So this is probably the most obvious one um, for Gaspar Noe. It's got to be the psychedelic trip slash kaleidoscope scene where the optics of the film just go completely haywire. uh, Not unlike what you'd see in a Gaspar Noe film. Um, Interestingly, Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian his review, he brought up Noe in his review of this film. He said, quote, the central strobe scene as the mushrooms kick in and the party commences is eyeball frazzling and cerebellum sizzling. This film begins with an entirely serious warning about this forthcoming effect. I was reminded of the non-serious warning to the faint hearted that Gaspar Noe put into one of his films. And Noe is a big fan of torturing his audiences with stroboscopic flickering. All right. Shall we move on to the Ellen Ripley Award for the character that most deserved to live? Uh, named after, of course, Sigourney Weaver in the Alien franchise. Bobby, do you want to start us off with this one? Yes, I would uh, nominate Friend for the Ellen Ripley Award. I like that uh, he is pure and satisfying in almost every interaction that he has. Um, and there's a sort of, I mean, obviously he's dim a little bit, but uh, I appreciate that sweetness. And so it's nice that he gets resurrected for us over and over. Not only does he not have a proper name, he's uh, really just kind of a, uh, he's a cipher, but he's a funny cipher and he has some interesting stories. Um, and I was sad to see him go. I liked him. I liked him a lot. You know, for, for a character who gets to say things like, I've never had so many friends as I do in this field. Mm, I know. You know, I mean, he's such a, like, sweet idiot. But because I don't know as an audience member that he has died, at the end of the film, he seems to be very much alive as he stands with Whitehead and Jacob in the field and exits once more through the hedgerow back into what we understand reality to be, I have to abstain from designating the Ellen Ripley Award for a field in England. Okay, I hear you, but I will just one quibble. I don't recall seeing anyone but Whitehead exit the field. I I recall the scene you're talking about where he sees himself, Jacob, and friend, but I don't remember the other two exiting. I certainly don't think they do actually exit, but I think that they are presented to him 
in the yes. end. So next is the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die. And does Michael Myers, of course, being the uh, the big bad from the Halloween cinematic universe. So for Michael Myers, um, I, I'm just going to quote the line, quote, it does not surprise me that the devil is an Irishman. Um, I'm going to give it to O'Neill, whose every word feels like a threat. Michael Smiley, just amazing in this role. Bradford, who do you got? The one and only, the Irish wizard O'Neill. Bobby? I would agree. He is a vile bastard. Uh, next, we'll go to the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. Ken Russell, of course, the celebrated English director uh, who was responsible for such gems as Lair of the White Worm, Salome's Last Dance, Altered States, The Devils, Women in Love, um, and so many more. Tommy and Tommy, of course. So for the Ken Russell Award, I'm just going to give it to the entire divination sequence. I mean, first, whatever the hell happens in the tent, the screaming, Whitehead screaming with Jacob and friend, unable to enter because Cutler knocks them back, followed by Whitehead emerging with this rope around him and this crazed grin on his face in slow motion, then running around like a maniac trying to divine the location of the quote unquote treasure in the field to the sound of, you know, like a penny whistle. And it concludes with the whole, quote, open up and let the devil in moment where Whitehead vomits up the the stones with runes on them. I mean, that whole sequence screams Baroque to me. So I'm going to give that the Ken Russell Award. Bobby? The way in which the film oscillates and mirrors itself and when it collapses into a zero point into nothing, when his ego is gone and you as an audience member have experienced that fully and that that is gorgeous. I'm able to lean in entirely and it satisfies all of my visual impulses and at the same time gives me the pure transformation of Whitehead. Bobby, I'm going to agree with you a thousand percent the psychedelic stroboscopic ego killing moment uh when whitehead has eaten the mushrooms and uh comes into full possession of his occult abilities uh shall we um shall we move on mr winnick yes what what is our last award the brad doroff award for the character that could have been played or perhaps should have been played Mm-hmm. By Brad Dourif. And who is this Brad Dourif? Brad Dourif uh, is a great character actor. You may remember him from last season's The Exorcist 3, in which he plays James Veneman, the Gemini killer. Uh, but of course, Mr. Dourif has, uh, ha- has delighted audiences for centuries uh, in, in roles <laughs> like... The voice of Chucky in the yes. Child's Play franchise. Yeah. So, Bobby, do you have a Brad Dourif award for us? Well, I have split feelings about that because yes. it would produce two completely different movies. The first yeah. one I would say I would love to see the version of this where Brad is playing friend because mm. it brings out all, you know, Dourif's bizarre clown sort of instincts and smirking and like weird mannerisms yes that's the first film that i want to see the second film that i want to see 
is him playing O'Neill and bringing out all of those horrible, vicious things that Brad Dorff has brought to many roles. And you mentioned Dune, his Peter DeReese, Harkonnen, Mentat. Yes. That, that idea superimposed on O'Neill as a, as a, as a character, I can (laughs) totally get behind. So those are, I'm going to go with O'Neill though. I think that's what satisfied me the most. Fair enough. Brad, Bobby, I want to see Brad Dourif in all his stringy haired, reptilian, pop eyed glory playing the Irish wizard O'Neill. Just preening and horrifying. Perfect. Exactly. Now, how about you, Eric? For Brad Dourif, I have to say he could play any one of these characters, but I'm going to give it to Jacob, especially when he's trying to uh, take a shit, as it were. Um, I, I have to say, I think Duraf would grunt like nobody's business, and he would just sell the hell out of that moment, um, probably to disgusting effect. But uh, I would, I would pay good money to see that. I think you defended that properly. I, I am inclined to agree with you, Mister Tilly. Well, I think there's a universe in which there's a remake of A Field in England starring <laughs> only Brad Dourif. These are just fragments of Brad Dourif's like everyday personality. I'll buy all the popcorn for that viewing. All right, boys. Uh, with that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night, coincidentally called Final Exam. Mm. And this is the part of the podcast where we give you our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Bobby, would you like to go first? Sure. I am going to give it an A, straight flat A. I think I could give it an A plus if it went to a even deeply more Baroque disturbing direction towards the end. Mm -hmm. But it is a film that experientially from the first time I watched it to the fourth time I've watched it has just gotten better and better. And, and the journey of, of Whitehead is really, I think fully formed. Mm. Uh, That means a lot coming from such a a young warlock as yourself, Bobby. Uh, Now, what about you, Mr. Winnick? So for my final letter grade, um, the first time I saw this, I probably would have given it a B minus the second time a B plus so I'm going to give this a solid B. All right, Eric, I'm impressed. Thank you. To close out, I think it demonstrates a, a level of linguistic and narrative and visual complexity to say nothing of the, the sort of level of um, philosophical complexity uh, that I find in a field in England. So I'm going to give it an A. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, or if you did, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, have a listening party, bring some snacks, and hey... Maybe even subscribe. And be sure to check out all 13 hours of season one, if you haven't already. But of course, for someone who has experienced all 13 hours of season one, Bobby, what's your favorite episode? 
I would say that my favorite episode is my second favorite Wes Craven film, which is The People Under the, the People Stairs. The People Under the Stairs, yes! Wow. yes. Um, you, you and I have enjoyed that film many times. I would also say that my I, I appreciate your bonus ep- episodes immensely, and I would also recommend Crimes of the Future. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareupod.com. That's scare, the letter U, and pod.com. Thanks again to our extra special guest, Bobby Frederick Tilly. Bobby, um, if people want to find you or or fiction Bobby online, where can they find you? The quickest place to find me is on Instagram under specifically obsessed. Well, Um, you know, or pit in someone's basement, maybe. Our listeners can find me at www.bradfordlorick.com. You can find me on Letterboxd at EA Winnick or on Instagram at EA Winnick. Tonight's announcements have been by Kay Kaiser and Sir Anthony Hopkins. And from the series, I am not okay with this. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth, mixed by us into a whiff and poof of wildness. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time in the hallowed halls of the Internet's Institution of Insanity. I mean, higher learning. Scare You. Ha 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 ha.